0: Welcome to the Bloomberg Law Podcast. I'm June Grosso. Every day we bring you insight and analysis into the most important legal news of the day. You can find more episodes of the Bloomberg Law Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and on Bloomberg.com slash podcasts. According to a New York Times report out overnight, Special Counsel Robert Mueller has at least four dozen questions prepared for a potential interview with President Trump. In an interview with WMUR Manchester, former New York Mayor Rudy Giuliani, who's now a member of the Trump legal team, called for an end to the Mueller investigation altogether.
1: I think the American people are saying, OK, enough. Put up or shut up. I mean, you got something? OK, let's go ahead. If you don't, let's get it over with.
0: Joining me is Bradley Moss, a partner at Mark Zaid. Brad, let's start with the timing. The Mueller team doesn't leak, and these questions have been in the possession of the Trump team since March. Why do you think they're being leaked now?
2: Well, I think, and this is all speculation because none of us truly know who leaked it or their ultimate underlying motive, but the consensus speculation is that this is someone from within Trump's. Maybe not necessarily on his legal team, but people who have access to him and to his team's documents and understanding, who are trying to dissuade the president from sitting down with Mueller. They have seen the detailed nature of these questions. They know how Mueller would do follow-up questions, and they have the same type of concerns that John Dowd apparently had about having the president sit down with Mueller and address these questions. The president does not have a great history Uh, providing clear and simple and concise answers in depositions. And the idea of putting him in a room with Mueller and his team in this circumstance is just not what any credible lawyer would advise.
0: I like that term consensus speculation. I may borrow that from you. So (laughs) these are just basically topics. Will the questions be more detailed and include references to documents or the testimony of others? Give us an example of what a question might sound like.
2: Sure. So these are what we would kind of describe as, you know, the starting off point questions. You use this broader, more general type of question to start the line of inquiry. And then depending on how the individual, such as the president in this circumstance, answers it, you follow up and you follow the facts and you follow the explanations where they lead you. You can, of course, cite back to existing documentation you may already have in this type of situation. It's almost borders on axiomatic, that they would have provided the, uh, the president's lawyers with some kind of understanding of which documents would be at issue. They're not, I don't see Mueller finding any real basis here to try to sandbag the president. I don't think it helps him in any way. So if there's going to be emails, if there's going to be memoranda, I think the president will already know about it in advance. But you use that initial frame setting question like the ones we saw in the New York Times report to start your lines of inquiry and you follow them from there.
0: The questions cover a broad range of subjects, and obstruction of justice is prominent among them. What is Mueller trying to find out here? Well, at least
2: two things. One is his original underlying premise and mandate, which is, was there any criminal coordination or conspiracy between the Trump campaign and Russian operatives, whether officially part of the Russian government or people working on their own? Um, That was the original premise. And there still are numerous questions in there in terms of the Trump Tower meeting in summer of 2016, in terms of that very eye-opening question about what the president knew about contacts between his campaign, particularly Paul Manafort and Russian nationals in terms of providing assistance to the campaign. So that was the obvious first step. But the other parts, and you see it throughout these questions, are how the president responded both internally— and in response to media reports about the about the uh, investigation, when he's firing Comey, when he's pressuring the Attorney General Jeff Sessions to unrecuse himself, when he's trying to stop Jeff Sessions from resigning, when he's pushing for possible pressure to fire the special counsel, what Mr. Mueller is trying to determine is if the president had corrupt intent in how he was trying to push back on the investigation. And if he did... That would be the basis for Mr. Mueller to recommend congressional uh, impeachment inquiry into the issue of obstruction of justice.
0: Yeah, a favorite question of mine was at the special counsel asking about the special counsel. What consideration and discussions did you have regarding terminating the special counsel in June of 2017? What, What surprised you? Any surprises here for you?
2: Well, from the collusion angle, I mean, I think what raised everybody's eyebrows was this question about assistance. Uh, people from the campaign, particularly Paul Manafort, seeking assistance from the Russians. That really hasn't been publicly discussed, or there's been no evidence to come out in any of the indictments or any of the official disclosures by the special counsel. So if he's asking that kind of question to the president, everybody's, again, consensus speculation is that Mr. Mueller has something. How substantive, how concrete, we don't know, but he has something to indicate that there's more to the story about how much the campaign was willing to try to work with Russian nationals to get assistance in the campaign, whether it's hacking of DNC emails or releases of, stuff, of emails and documents through WikiLeaks, we don't know yet. That is, raised so many eyebrows. What does Mueller have there? Is there more to the story?
0: And does that tie in with the enormous pressure that Mueller's prosecutors seem to be putting on Manafort in the in the cases against him?
2: Yes, absolutely. And the the odds are, you know, watching what Mueller's team – Mueller's team, sorry, what Manafort's team has been doing recently, they're throwing everything at the wall that they can to try to weaken Mueller's case against him. Odds are, you know, even the judge has said this. Odds are Manafort's going to jail for at least some period of time if he takes this to trial. What he's trying to do with his motions to dismiss, with his motions to suppress – with the motion he just filed last night in terms of trying to get an investigation into the leaks. If he's trying to pick and gnaw and weaken the case against him in any way he can to leverage it for the best deal, best plea deal he can ultimately get before he flips.
0: You speculated and consensus speculation that this was to send a message to show the president you know, how how these questions are toughened, but Trump tweeted this morning, no questions on collusion. That's the word he loves to use. What does that reveal about the president's knowledge of what he's facing?
2: Uh, it's, it's always hard to know how much of that, how much of what he tweets out and how he describes it is more of a political act and political theater, as opposed to reflecting what he truly understands. I think he has done a... Fantastic job of, quote-unquote, working the reps. He has made it through his media allies, through his own tweets, through his political operation at the White House, to beat back against the investigation, claiming it's biased, that it's out of control, so that he's done it in a way that no matter what comes out of this, even if there is some type of evidence, some type of indictment that proves there was some manner of, quote-unquote, collusion, of criminal coordination, that there's a portion of his political base that won't care. They'll think, it's all, they'll think it's all deep state hijinks. They'll never believe any of it. And so long as he continues to work the refs like this and make these claims the way he does, he's going to be politically able to survive.
0: About 45 seconds here. Is, is your conclusion that after this, he will not talk to Robert Mueller without a subpoena?
2: If he listens to his lawyers, there is no way on earth he sits down with Robert Mueller absent a subpoena. Not a chance. No lawyer would ever agree to it.
0: Those are the key words. If he listens to his lawyers, which it seems he has not been doing, that's Bradley Moss. Thanks, Brad. He's a partner at Mark Zaid. Yesterday, lawyers for the Justice Department and AT&T Time Warner made their closing arguments in an antitrust case that could forever change the media industry. Speaking with reporters at the start of the trial, AT&T CEO Randall Stevenson said that the Justice Department's case defied logic.
2: It stretches the very reach of antitrust law beyond the breaking point. All of this in an effort to stop this combination.
0: Joining me is Bloomberg News legal reporter Eric Larson, who was in the courtroom Eric, there have been lines to get into the courtroom at different times during the trial. What was it like for the closing arguments?
1: Uh, It was a lot like at the start of the trial. There were long lines. There are people who are paid to wait in line for some of the more high-powerful people that are there all day long. Uh, It filled up two courtrooms. There was an overflow courtroom as well. And uh, it was was, uh, a lot of high spirits on both sides. Everyone seemed fairly confident.
0: The attorneys had to consolidate six weeks of testimony into an hour-and-a-half argument, which is nothing for a lawyer. What were their final appeals to the judge?
1: Uh, Well, the government uh, came back to its original argument over and over again, which is simply that uh, AT&T, after this merger, would have too much bargaining power by having control over Time Warner's Turner Broadcasting content, which is really powerful, popular, uh, and they say that this type of vertical merger, even though it's, it's not usually the kind that they challenge, uh, is exactly what they need to be looking at in this new sort of media landscape. And, of course, the company said that this is the kind of combination that they need to do in order to compete with companies like Netflix.
0: The stakes are really high for both sides here. Tell us a little bit more about that.
1: Well, the AT&T is really uh, hinging its future on, on this uh, this deal, it's an $85 billion deal. Um, they say that uh, you know the, the future of their company is sort of at stake in, in being able to compete with companies like Netflix and Amazon that are able to deliver their content directly to consumers, and they have a lot more information and knowledge about their consumers, which also gives them more power in, in terms of advertising. Uh, so they're really staking a lot on this, and they're uh, – they said they were pretty surprised that they were challenged by the Justice Department on this. Uh, they thought that it might sail through, um, but that
0: wasn't the case. And what about the Justice Department? Might this change the way it does business in the future?
1: Well, I think that the, the Justice Department has definitely sent a signal uh, that this type of uh, so-called vertical merger where two companies on the, the same chain are, are, are combining rather than two direct competitors combining. is saying that these types of deals, uh, which may have sailed through before are no longer going to uh, be so easy to get approval on. So um, if other companies like AT&T and Time Warner are considering similar deals, they're definitely going to be watching this very, very closely to see uh, what the government is going to do uh, in terms of if they lose this case. And, of course, uh, that would be a huge setback for the government. It, it, it took a, a leap with this case, and it would have backfired if it fails.
0: So Judge Leon will announce his decision at a June 12th hearing. Any indications that he's been leaning one way or another?
1: Well, it's always hard to predict what a judge is thinking, of course. Uh, But throughout the trial again, six weeks testimony, uh, you know, the people who were at the hearing sort of uh, seemed to agree amongst themselves a lot that he was questioning the government's case. Uh, over and over again in different ways. Um, you know, that doesn't necessarily mean that he's going to rule against them, but he did seem to uh, express some confusion about, for example, uh, the expert report by the government uh, that formed the backbone of their case. Um, and uh, actually, there were some sort of gotcha moments that the defense was able to produce during the trial to uh, show potential uh, errors in the government's data, that sort of thing. Um, so, uh, And and on the day of the closing arguments yesterday, uh, the CEOs of both of the companies had flown in to attend, and and they did seem to be in pretty high spirits talking with their lawyers before the proceedings got underway.
0: So the judge is leaving time. He's making his decision on June 12th. He's leaving time before the merger deadline for an appeal. So we assume that AT&T Time Warner would appeal. Is it likely that the government would appeal as well if they lose?
1: Um, I, I, I don't know. I mean, I, would be su- I wouldn't be surprised if they did. I think that they would definitely want to see the case through, uh, at least through an appeal. But that's, that's really just a guess. Uh, uh, I mean, it's, uh, it, it's something that they'll have to wait and see, I suppose. But they, they haven't said, so.
0: This has really drawn a lot of attention, as I mentioned at the top. When you look back at what you've seen or heard about, what stands out in the trial as most unusual?
1: Uh, Well, I think, uh, like we mentioned earlier, it was unusual to a lot of people that uh, the government challenged this vertical merger to begin with, especially because a sort of a similar vertical merger with Comcast and NBCU. Um, You know, there there was a challenge to that, but it was resolved through uh, an agreement, and and one could have expected that perhaps something like that might have been reached within this case as well. Uh, But uh, it it is interesting that, for example, the experts from both sides were able to come up with completely opposite views of the marketplace and the data that they use to come to opposite conclusions, even though they're both expert economists hired by each side.
0: The battle of the experts. Eric, Eric do, you, do you believe that that's where it's going to, you know, the, the real decision is going to be for the judge and, and to which expert he believes or more of the other testimony? About a minute here.
1: You know, I really do think that he's going to focus in on these two experts. Uh, they came up, one one said that the, the government's experts said that the deal would raise prices for consumers by more than $400 million a year uh, for paid. Pay uh, TV su- subscribers, whereas the company's experts said that they would end up saving $500 billion a year or more for subscribers. Uh, so it came down to studies and, and, and data that some side said was cherry picked and the other said was not. So It'll really be up to this judge to decide which, which expert he believes.
0: Quite a difference between the two experts' testimony. Thanks, Eric. That's Bloomberg News legal reporter Eric Larson. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Law Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to the show on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and on Bloomberg.com slash I'm June Grosso. This is Bloomberg.